Welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for product managers, leaders, and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping you become a product master. Listen and get ready for higher performance, for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad, and this is where product leaders and managers become product masters, gaining practical knowledge, influence, and confidence so you'll create products customers love. Our guest says that organizations need pirates. These are the people who make entrepreneurship a legitimate part of the business. They are the innovators and transformers. Pirates design value propositions and business models that scale. They help organizations change and grow. Our guest's name is Dr. Tindy Vicky, Associate Partner at Strategizer, helping companies innovate for the future while managing their core business. He has written three books, and his latest book is Pirates in the Navy, How Innovators Drive Transformation. If you hear anything that you want to refer back to or share with a colleague, we take detailed notes for you. You'll find those at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 308, along with a one-page action guide to help you put what we discuss into action. Now, let's talk with Tindy. Tindy, welcome to the Everyday Innovators. Hey, thank you, man. Really, really, really glad to be here. I'm glad to be talking with you. So I've had the pleasure of talking with a few people from Strategizer. You are an associate partner there. And you've had the pleasure of helping several companies and individuals, right, become better innovators. And you have this book that you have recently written called Pirates in the Navy. First, I'm cu- tell us about the title, right? Pirates in the Navy. Yeah, so it's, uh, it's a little crazy title, but I actually... I kind of stole and rearranged the phrasing from Steve Jobs, right? So it was Steve Jobs that said, it's better to be a pirate than to join the Navy. And what he was talking about was this idea, you know, that like large companies are slower than startups, you know, you want entrepreneurial teams. And so he really said that, you know, like around the time he was building the Macintosh computer and sort of, you know, made that team into like a startup team, they like planted the pirate flag and they were like working on this like breakthrough sort of technology which became a really big success for Apple. So, you know, you fast forward a few decades later and innovation has become really important in large organizations. I mean, I think these days you'd be, especially post-COVID, you'd be hard-pressed to find a CEO that would say innovation doesn't matter. We can just carry on the way we are. So, so I think that now with that understanding, perhaps it's no longer, you know, better to be a pirate than to join the Navy. It's maybe time for organizations to think about how they can actually like, you know, create pirates in the Navy. I like it. So we, we need more pirates in organizations, I think, to help push innovation forward. Who, who are pirates, right? Like maybe I'm a pirate and I don't know it. What, what are characteristics of a pirate? Right. So that's interesting, right? So the first thing I, I have to say is, you know, my, my partner at Strategizer, Alex Osterwalder, he likes to say that innovators should not call themselves pirates because pirates used to get killed. And so <laughs> they walk the plank, <laughs> they walk the plank, right? If they're found, they walk the plank. And so one of the things that we've had a conversation about very intensively and part of what informs the book Pirates in the Navy is this idea that you want to be a pirate, right? But you want to be a specific kind of pirate. And so it is not that you want to be a pirate in the same way Steve Jobs was, right? Where you view yourself as antagonistic to your own company, because even Steve Jobs was made to walk the plank eventually. And then he had to like leave Apple and then come back. You really want to figure out a way to make entrepreneurship a legitimate part of how your company does business. And so the way to do that is to really think about how you can make innovation sort of, you know, part of the processes and the way the company views itself. And so 
what really matters is 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 kind of thinking about okay so i work inside a large company i know that the world out there celebrates entrepreneurs right which behaviors and attitudes from entrepreneurs are appropriate for me to bring inside my organization because as much as we celebrate entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs that become heroes and everything it's not everything we want from entrepreneurs right when you're working inside a large organization entrepreneurs are innovative they're confident they test their assumptions they really focus on the market and making sure they generate revenues so that's stuff you want to bring mm-hmm. into your practice but there's other things that entrepreneurs have that you don't want to bring like you know ego brashness vanity right all you know super confidence all these sort of abrasive behaviors and so we want to leave those at the door because the only way to succeed as a as an entrepreneur inside a large organization is to have really good political acumen. So you need to be this mixture of really great innovator plus really great political acumen and that's what can make you succeed as a pirate in the navy. Yeah, excellent. It reminds me, I had a discussion a few years ago with Steve Prez. I don't recall which interview that was. And he is a, or was a serial entrepreneur at Caterpillar that makes mm. the heavy equipment manufacturer, right? And he had been a serial entrepreneur by the time I talked to him for like 23 years at Caterpillar. And that was a rather recent term because they were at some presentation where they were hearing about this concept of entrepreneurship inside companies. And his boss turns to Steve and says, oh, so that's what you are. Right. And, and it's, it, it kind of conveyed in this conversation, you know, these good, good behaviors of you bring new ideas and you try to push things forward. And also a little bit of this abrasive behaviors, like you don't really fit, you know, it, it, you're a little bit out of sync with what rest of us do. So we need pirates that help push things forward in a way that fits, fits the organization as well. Exactly. And so when you look at it historically, right, you know, I mean, we tend to use the term pirate or buccaneers like interchangeably, but there's also another group of pirates that were called privateers. Hmm. And, 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 and privateers are an interesting group of pirates because they were pirates, but they were affiliated with a particular country. So, for example, so Francis Drake was known as Queen Elizabeth's pirate. Hmm. And what it really was was a privateer. And he had a specific task, which is go and raid Spanish ships. And then when he brought back whatever he brought back there, there was an institution ready to receive him and even give him a knighthood, Sir Francis Drake. And of course, most privateers also became explorers. It's sort of, you know, the British government entered its colonial era. And so I remember actually specifically being in Tel Aviv and having dinner with an Israeli innovator. His name is Sharaf Sneer, working mm-hmm. for Amdok. And we dived into this conversation and, and I remember him like, going, you don't want to be a pirate because if you're a pirate, nobody cares what you're working on because we were just talking about my book. What you want to be is an explorer because when you're an explorer, somebody actually sent you and they're invested in your success, right? Mm. So that's really what we're trying to do, right? When we're building innovation capabilities inside large companies, we want our leaders to be invested in what we're working on such that if we do become successful, there's resources, they're ready for us to scale our ideas. Yeah, that is a good way to think of it, too. The privateers, you know, paid pirates, basically, for a task. And the explorers, right? I think many of us want to be explorers and push things forward, especially product managers that listen to this podcast. So, okay, so Pirates in the Navy. Thanks for sharing some about the title and who are pirates. The book starts out with, I thought, an interesting place because you provide some characteristics of, of innovation, but then you talk about innovation labs a bit. And it's interesting that we saw, I don't know when this started, maybe 
late 90s, early 2000s or so, we saw this big rise in innovation labs. If you were a medium to large company, you had to have some sort of an innovation lab, right? And then we kind of saw them quietly, you know, they all made big splashes and a lot of them lasted for three years or so. And then we saw them kind of quietly disappear, but they're still in existence. And I'm curious, you, you discussed the pros and cons of innovation labs there. I thought it might be fun to start with just what is an example of a good lab that has, has been helpful? Yeah, so before I give you that example of a good lab that's been helpful, let's, let's first talk about like what we care about. Okay. So what we care about is that the things that we're working on end up creating value for society and for our company if we're an innovator. So we don't just want to have ideas and play around with technologies and make mm-hmm. applications and all this stuff, right? We care that we're going to end up combining those really great ideas with sustainably profitable business models that are scalable and create value. So if you're going to have an innovation lab, the question is, is not whether or not you should have a lab is not the question. The question is, when you're in the lab, are you engaged in innovation or are you engaged in innovation theater? Mm. Right? And innovation theater is engaging in activities that look like innovation but don't really create value. So idea jams, hackathons, football tables. Hey, you might even get a chef. You know, you never know, like if you're working at Google. So all of these things don't really create value. And so what we really want is the ability to, 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 to create value. And so one of my favorite examples historically, of course, is Intuit Labs, right? Like Intuit's Innovation Lab. And what I love about Intuit Innovation Lab is that it really speaks to that privateer thing that we were talking about, which is it wasn't just a lab in some far off reach of the organization. It was connected to something much more global within the organization. They had a program called Design for Delight, which was a framework that was designed globally with support from the CEO, right? And there were teams that were built around this in a design for the design, this this D4D program designed for delight. There were sort of corporate coaches that they were building and those corporate coaches would be part of supporting teams to build their innovation uh, sort of, you know, you know, you know, projects. And then with leadership support, they were able to get like preset, pre-allocated time, like, you know, 15 to 20% of your time can be spent in the lab working on ideas, not just like working on ideas because you're hanging out, but actually they created a toolbox and a methodology for then making sure that those ideas get tested, validated, and actually launched with customers in the the market. And so that's why I think Intuit has been a a little bit more successful with their innovations, you know, TurboTax, et cetera, just because they're really focused not just on let's make an app, but really thinking about what value that's actually going to create. Yeah, so there has to be purpose for that, you know, innovation lab, and that purpose changes at times. I think the Intuit example is really good. I appreciate you sharing that. It, as you were, it made me think of a conversation I had with the innovation director at Chick Fil A, and mm-hmm. I don't know if you've been to a Chick Fil A before. We, we we have them here in the states, right? So I have been yet one. Yeah, excellent. They like to think of them not, uh, not as a fast food chicken place, but a, as a fast dining chicken restaurant. But the Innovation Lab came about kind of in response to some problems that they were just seeing as an organization, right? And, and one was people being fearful to take action that was risky, right? To try things that they weren't sure how it was going to work out. And one step of that really had nothing to do with the lab itself, but they kind of leveraged these things together. They, they just, just had it all, they had all the executives start sharing stories of their past of big mistakes they made, Right. It's like, you know, I tried doing this and it didn't work out for us. And and that helped free up the organization some. 
And they have a physical innovation lab that very similar to what you shared about Intuit. They kind of use it as their test place, right, to validate ideas. And at one time, all Chick-fil-A's used to have a single drive-through, like most fast food places. And they, they mocked up in this lab with electric cars. I think they started out actually with tricycle bikes, and then they got electric cars. What if they had had a dual drive-through? You know, how would that in, increase throughput? And, you know, they just use it to mock things up and test and that is a purposeful use of a lab to try to solve real problems. Exactly. Rather than more, you know, some labs are set up as like marketing tools so that the company can appear to be innovative. Mm -hmm. And then all they do in the lab is like host events and bring speakers. Hey, today, do you want to come and give a keynote with innovation? And then they host like fun events, like idea competitions. But then nothing of value actually really happens. Like you can see with the example you gave with the drive-through, they were focused on solving an actual business problem. Mm-hmm. And with the experiments they were running, they were going to be able to learn whether or not this thing actually solves a, a, a business problem, right? They didn't go, let's do an idea jam about drive-throughs, you know? So they, it's a very different way of approaching things and, and, and you know, trying to solve problems. Tendi is sharing valuable insights, and I have one too. Product managers are huge lovers in organizations, having valuable impacts on revenue as they create value for customers. Now, how do you really optimize that value to increase their effectiveness even further? Well, organizations are using my Rapid Product Master Experience. This is a nine-week journey for a group of up to 14 people, where we meet virtually for 75 minutes each week, getting everyone on the same page, improving performance. I've seen teams collaborate more effectively, break through barriers, share information, and increase their focus on the customer. Go to theeverydayinnovator.com slash RPM to learn more about how it will help your product managers improve your organization. Now, back to more insights with Tindy. So with that, so there are some value in innovation labs. We have seen them decrease, but your book isn't really about saying we need to start an innovation lab to be more innovative, right? No, my book is really about, so my book is about authenticity, if you mm-hmm. really want to think about it that way, right? So the... The biggest challenge we've had with innovation is that there's a lot of things that are just going on out there that are myths and behaviors that are not really that productive. And so I just challenge entrepreneurs because in the story of innovation, the antagonist has always been the organization. Mm. Oh, they don't know what they're doing. They're all MBAs and they're all suck. And that's the reason why we're not succeeding. But actually, that's 50% of the problem. The other 50% of the problem is innovation doesn't succeed because the innovators are not interested in working on things that create value. They're much more interested in the performance aspect of it and looking innovative rather than in the daily grind and the tearful failure, suffering, head in the dust, right? You know, real grinding innovation. And so the book so the book for me is like a pushback on, on those behaviors to say, as entrepreneurs, we have to be engaged in behaviors that actually create value. If you're a privateer, you don't leave the dock until you have a signature from the queen that says you have a charter to go out into the world. Hmm. But a lot of innovation teams, they don't have a charter from the leadership. They don't have anything, right? They're just like, yay, they gave us a lab. We're off. And it's like, well, you're actually setting yourself up for failure in, in, the, in the future. So you have to be really thinking about, okay, you got a lab, but you have a bridge back to the core. And how do you build that bridge back to the core business? Okay, so let's talk about how we get that done, right? So if we are pirates, and I think many of the everyday innovators listening are pirates, right? We're product managers, we're innovators. We are trying to create 
products that create more value for our customers and take existing products and create more value for our customers. What are the things that we should be doing? How do we, how do we be good pirates? Yeah, so beyond caring about creating real value, right? What then that tells you is that you have to be thinking about the value you're creating for customers. So you have to be thinking about really great value propositions and the business model that you're going to use to take those value propositions to scale. Those two things together mean that you you are then much more likely to, to succeed. But once you make that statement, it tells you another thing, which is there's no chance that an innovator can ever work on a product and launch it without collaborating with other key functions in the business. Mm-hmm. And so the question is, as an innovator, what agreements can you make as you're working on your project that will allow you to succeed in the future? Because the problem with a lot of innovation teams that I work, they try as much as possible to avoid sales directives, as much as Hmm. possible to avoid legal and compliance, as much as possible to avoid finance, right? Until they feel they're ready. And then they just turn up and they go, ta-da, you know, we've been in the lab for a year. Here's that thing we've been working on. And everyone's like, well, like, who cares? Like, nobody knew that was happening, et cetera. So the the really, the, the behaviors is as you're doing your work, there's a parallel track of building a, a bridge back to the core. Do you have a sponsor that might take the business to scale if it actually becomes successful? If you work with legal and compliance through any legal and compliance issues that might actually you know, cause the project to, to actually stall? If you, if you talk to finance about like, you know, if we're successful, do we even have resources to scale this idea? All of these things are things that are risky assumptions that have to be tested along with the risky assumptions we often focus on around do customers want it, you know, will they pay, et cetera. So we need to pick this apart a little bit because we, we, we both know a lot of innovation happens in organizations because you alluded to this, to this a little bit earlier, right? Kind of the, the 50% thing that there are, are, sometimes we call these the antibodies to innovation, right? In companies uh, and companies don't, I don't think they, don't, they purposely don't do this, right? They, they're not trying to create barriers to block innovation. It's just as organizations grow, they're trying to do what organizations are supposed to do, which is optimize their performance. And in optimizing their performance, they tend to start looking at things that are risky as things they don't want to do so much, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I know we've both seen examples in companies where the things that get the, the new thing, the thing that they say, yeah, that was our innovation success, they did it in secret because otherwise it would have gotten killed. So you're really making a case here, bring it out into the light and make agreements with others, make this work. But that's hard. So <laughs> help, help us work through this to make this more real for us. Okay, cool. So let's talk about the, the, the they did it in secret aspect of it. Okay. If we really look deeply at that. The question is, they did it in secret, but who else was in on the secret? That's the fundamental question, right? The team might have been working in, in secret, but I am quite confident that for those innovators that actually succeed, there were a couple of other really important people that were in on the secret, either the CEO or the CFO or the head of marketing or somebody else that were all in on the secret and they were helping protect this idea and navigate it across the hurdles that it had. And then the idea became successful and then ta-da, things actually come out. And so mm-hmm. there is no chance that a team can work on an idea in secret without any leader knowing about it. And then they just reveal it and then it becomes successful. Like that just never happens. It's, it's, it's impossible. So the question for you, if you want to work in secret, which is necessary to avoid antibodies, you have to systematically choose who's in on the secret. Okay. Because if you, as you systematically choose who's in on the secret, you're opening up the path towards, to, towards your success. So that's one idea, right? That's one way to actually do it. 
My preference is to actually create agreements before ideas come up. So create agreements with the organization to say, listen, this is how you run the core business. And here's a group of methodologies about how you run innovation. Can we have a set of teams and leaders whose job is to do innovation management? I often encourage companies to create an entrepreneurship function. And every time I do this, I get killed on Twitter. They're like, oh, innovation should be everywhere. If a company has an innovation department, they're not really innovating. And I find that criticism a little bit absurd because we don't say finance is everywhere. And if a company has got a finance department, they're not really doing finance. Or marketing is everywhere. If a company has a marketing department, they're not really doing marketing. And the reason why these functions exist is because there's a realization that there's actually a systematic methodology that needs to be driven throughout the organization that needs expertise to sort of manage it. And so the challenge for the 21st century, I think, and the 22nd century is entrepreneurship inside large organizations. And so we need an entrepreneurship function. And the goal of an entrepreneurship function, and I've built a couple of these, is not for them to work on products and projects, but it's for them to build the infrastructure, the highways, the roads, mm. the connections and everything that allow these teams to then be able to sort of, to sort of navigate this. And so one of the projects I worked on was the Lean Product Lifecycle, which we created at Pearson. Um, and we were working there with Sonia Krasevich, who was Senior Vice President, and Craig Strong, who was Vice President. And we were building this framework around how Pearson can do innovation. So we made it a product life cycle with an innovation part and an execution part, right? And then we had like, we, we, we worked hard. We, we were not working on any products. We were just working on the agreement. So we worked hard with finance, for example, in terms of how they fund these projects. And we built it, we got an agreement with the CFO that, you know, you know, leaders can make incremental bets. So they invest a little bit and then double down on those ideas that are actually showing success. And we agreed on them the templates that are used to request such funding. So now the teams have the toolbox because we've built a sort of highway and then they can actually use that toolbox. And so it's sort of a two-pronged methodology that, that I'm proposing. So a lot of good insights in there. One was that th- this can be taken incrementally, right? So mm-hmm. the agreement with finance, we're not, as entrepreneurs, we're, we're going to shoot ourselves in the foot if we go in and ask for the, you know, the, the big ask of where we need to get to. It's going to cost $100 million to launch this product. Well, how about we ask for the thousand bucks to do the first experiment we need to find out if there's any interest in this product, right? Exactly. And so, so we can do things inc- incrementally here. But in that example, for, at Pearson, you also did have top-level support, right? You, you said you had the CEO to help out with this. Yes. So one of the things, we're well, not to really help out, but what we did was we got approval from the CEO and from the board, like the C-level board, to do the work of building the product lifecycle. But here's one thing you learn straight away when you're inside the large organization. C-level support is good, but the company is really run in the middle. Right? Mm-hmm. You have to get agreement with middle managers for anything to actually happen. And so you take the CEO support and you use that as a way to open doors. But as you open those doors, you have to be showing that you're creating value for these other stakeholders. Otherwise, they'll just stifle the effort and make you look bad in front of the CEO. And so we had to go around building those, those, those relationships. And I remember when we were recruiting members to join our team, a lot of people who would apply to join our team thought they'd be working on products. And then they'd be disappointed to find out that they're not working on products. Instead, they're working on the system with which product teams will then use to work on products, right? And so that's really what we were working on and what we were building there. 
Okay. So th- this question comes up a lot and, you know, and you, you address this in part by, you know, innovation is everyone's job. So you, you hear that, right? Uh, like quality is everyone's job. Yes. Right. But, but someone kind of has to be responsible for what does it mean to do quality, right? Just like what does it mean to do innovation? And so kind of building that infrastructure and helping. And so, so th- this discussion happens a lot. And, and I, I get the question too. I'd love to have your take on it more about, well, if we, if we know we need to be more innovative as an organization, how do we go about that? Do we start it with one project, right? And like we, we get the help of some uh, executive sponsor and we just start with one project. Do we start with a framework that says this is how we are going to innovate? Do we try to do something like Adobe's Redbox, you know, uh, kick, 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 kickbox thing where we open up innovation in the sense to everyone that wants to participate? What are your thoughts? So again, it depends. <laughs> it depends on what level of executive support you have. Now, remember what the ultimate destination is here, right? The problem with innovation at the moment inside any corporation is that innovation is a second-class citizen. Mm-hmm. Right? It doesn't have enough power and clout. One of the questions I often ask in my workshops to innovation teams is, just think about this for a second. How easy would it be for the leadership in this company to get rid of you? Would it be... Number one, as hard as getting rid of a key function like finance, or would it be as easy as getting rid of external consultants? And invariably, over 70% of innovation teams will say they're as easy to get rid of as external consultants. And so what that communicates is that innovation does not have the same status, legitimacy, and power as any of these other key functions. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to get to the point where innovation has that level of status, legitimacy, and power either because we have an entrepreneurial CEO like Jeff Bezos who's driving the innovation program himself and then everybody can see that innovation is, is really important or we have a chief entrepreneur or a head of innovation that is actually kind of thinking about driving the innovation process and they're at a high enough status that they can make important decisions. Now, the way you put this in place is either Peter Ma, for example, from Ping An was like, you know what, I'm too busy. I can't drive innovation myself, so I'm going to appoint a co-CEO with the mandate to drive innovation. So that's a top-down process where the infrastructure is getting built, and then it's up to that sort of leader to drive innovation and sort of start finding the finding the, the projects. You're lucky okay. if you're there, right? Right. But if you're not there, you, now you have to say, that's our destination. We're trying to make innovation a legitimate part of how we do business. Now you have to start by getting, by getting early wins. Mm-hmm. If you're an underground movement and you're starting from the bottom, you have to start by getting early wins. And the best way to get early wins is to identify those leaders within your organization who are early adopters. It's very rare that I work inside a company where there's no leader that's an early adopter. It's often the case that you can find one or two leaders within the organization that are early adopters for innovation. So you identify mm-hmm. those leaders and then you work with those leaders on one or two small projects and you help them succeed on the things that are important to them. And then you celebrate those wins, right? And that's what creates the gravity for you to potentially start a movement within your organization to make the other changes you want to make. A theme through everything that we've talked about, everything that you've shared, really is this aspect of collaboration in the context of how can we add value to the person that we need to influence as we're trying to create value for a customer, right? The, to create the sustainable business, right? Because yeah. like when you talk about the middle managers, actually where work gets done, right? They're the ones that allocate resources and, and can support things or kill things. Mm-hmm. And if we put things in the context of how does that help them that we really need to get on our side as an entrepreneur in the organization, 
we're more likely to build that coalition that we need to move things forward. Exactly. And that's what really, really matters, like this collaboration aspect and making sure we're working together. That's the only way that innovation succeeds inside large organizations. I mean, Clayton Christensen is like, you know, a legendary guy, right? He'd say like, you know, leaders think they run their companies, but they really don't. Like the people who run their companies are in the middle. They can make strategic decisions, but it's really important to make sure that you're kind of aligning, aligning all, all of these sort of relationships to kind of drive innovation. In a really great book by Kai Krippendorf called Innovation from Within, he describes the story of the person who was running Nike, the fuel band project. And this person has a really wonderful quote that I really like that I quote all the time. And it, and it says, when you're doing innovation inside a large company, you spend an inordinate amount of your time just lining up the cannon, right? Just like line up the marketing cannon, line up the finance cannon. And it's also important to kind of line up these cannons because some of them are actually pointed at you. <laughs> So you have to turn them around to make sure they're facing in the right direction. But then, you know, they then say, like, once you've completed lining up all the cannons, the cool thing about working in a large company is if you succeed in lining up all the cannons, when you let it rip, it goes out with a big bang that startups can never really accomplish because they don't have that level of resource scale, access to customers, and all of these other benefits, like brand, all these other benefits that large companies have. And so... It is worth it to invest in lining up the cannons because the, the you know the outcomes can be really really sort of significant. Yeah, absolutely. You, you need that network, your internal professional network, to get anything done, yeah. and it takes time to build that. And I think that's why, as entrepreneurs, we we are reluctant because we just want to make things happen quickly, right? It's like, why doesn't yeah. everyone else see it the way we do? But that's an investment that we need to make to be able to have influence. I, a uh, Clayton Christensen was not involved in this book, but Innovation Capital, Nathan Fur and. Jeff Dreyer, maybe. Right. So part of that Clayton Christensen team, right? They, they yeah, all work yeah, together. Yeah. And innovation capital is very much about what is that social capital that you build up so you can actually get things done, right? You, you need a network of, to make this happen. So, and, and if you really think about it, right, you need to think about it systematically as well. So one of the problems that we have with entrepreneurs is that the best way to be a serial entrepreneur is every time you encounter a problem with an innovation project that you're working on, Think about how you can already create agreements with those people such mm-hmm. that the next time you come back down that road, you've already made the agreement. So it's hard. So it's only hard the first time around rather than like you have to renegotiate with legal for every project. You have to renegotiate with finance for every project. Try and like use your earlier projects to create the necessary agreements that you'll need that will then make it, you know, go faster the next time and go faster the next time. And right. The next time. And that's how you become a really successful serial entrepreneur inside an organization. Right. Because next time you can just refer back to, well, you know what we did before, yeah. you know. Okay. Help us real quick. What's that conversation like the first time I go to finance or I go to marketing or, you know, what does it look like to get an agreement started? Yeah. So there's two stories that I can quickly tell. The first one is a finance one. So, you know, some of the conversations we've had, like, for example, when I was at Pearson and in other organizations is, just to go to finance and ask this really rude question and go, the reason why we have you on the call is to ask you, how much money would you be willing to invest in an idea that hasn't given you financial projections about how much money they can give you in five years? All right? And they go, we would never do that, right? That's just crazy. Like the deal is you want money, you promise us a return. And then we go, okay, cool. So of all the ideas that have ever come here promising you returns and you've given them money, how many of those have actually ever given you the returns they promised? And then you open a can of worms, it's like therapy for them. But you're like, man, these guys, they're always lying. They're making up the numbers, et cetera, et cetera. So 
you know, they open up. Like I remember having that conversation and you can really feel finance pain. Like they're burning money. Nobody's even tracking what happens to the projects afterwards, et cetera, et cetera. And then you say, what if, imagine a world where you made small bets and those bets bought you information about whether or not something is actually worth investing in. Mm-hmm. How much money would you be willing to spend for that? And then you start getting into this negotiation. And I remember we landed it. Okay, we'll give you $350,000 for any project max. After that, they have to come with a business plan. And then we said, oh, thank you very much. We're going to take that away and we're going to split it up. 50000 in the early stage, 250000 in the later stage. And then after that, you go for the bigger investment app. So that's what we did. That's what we did at, 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 at Pearson, right? And so that's one conversation that, that, that we've had. The other one that people try to avoid is legal and compliance. Mm-hmm. And I forced innovation teams to work with legal and compliance. And so what we did when I was working with this large airline company was we brought legal and compliance into the room. And we said, listen, here's an innovation framework that we're working on. We think innovation should be like testing testing with customers, then test your business model, minimum viable products, agile. We, thought we kind of showed them the ways of working. So we said, okay, mm-hmm. so that's our way of working. Now, can you please tell us one thing per sticky note? of all the criteria you need to be satisfied before you sign off the project and go out into the world. It's something that we're actually scaling. So they write all their criteria, maybe like sometimes 20 and 25. They would go, okay, cool. Now we have your 25 criteria and you have our framework. Now, during this stage here of discovery, all we're doing is talking to customers to find out if they have a real need. Which one of these criteria do you think applies when we're just doing that? And they go, oh, don't worry about that. Maybe if you just get like an NDA and you get da-da-da. So they give you like these two or three criteria that they want you to sort of, you know, you know, stick with. And then step by step by step, you build that up. And then you go, finally, okay, so here's our innovation framework aligned to your criteria. Is it okay for us to start using this to work together going forward? And who in your de- department owns this in terms of making it official with us? So you start to build those relationships and build those sort of relationships that way. And, and I've seen that work a couple of times. Those are really good examples, right? And, and you're building in trust through the process because you're asking them to participate in your framework, right? And not dictating, well, this is where things happen because of the framework that we designed. Exactly. And here's the cool thing about it. I remember that the chief legal counsel, whatever the chief counsel of this one company going, this is the first time in my whole career where I've ever been brought in early into anything. Like teams are negotiating with each other to find out what things they can get past us without us noticing. You can see in email conversations, people going back and forth. So we're about to go to legal. So what do we, how do we present this? And then they forget to delete their conversation when they then forward the documents to legal <laughs> and legal can see the things they were saying. And so you, teams are trying to avoid legal and so legal are really relieved because they don't want to be a, a tick box at the end of a process, right? Mm-hmm. They want to be involved in systematically helping you build this because then by the time you get to the point where you need to scale, you've already got their support, right? And then right. It's, a, it's a completely different conversation. Yeah, very different conversation. That's great. And this innovation framework that we've kind of alluded to, do you talk about this in the book? A little bit, right? So okay. we talk about like the systematic process of testing ideas, going from like discovery where you focus on like learning what customers need and then you start building minimum viable versions of the product and testing that and building up the rest of your business model, validating your channels, what how much customers are willing to pay, what it costs to create the product. And as you get more and more evidence, you get more and more confident to start thinking about scaling, right? So, yep. you know, those are bits and pieces of, of the framework that th- things to validate, yeah. 
Good. Thank you for all the information. Pirates in the Navy. As listeners know, I like innovation quotes. You shared one a bit uh, just a bit ago, too, from a book that I'm not familiar with, Innovation from Within, so I'll find out more about that. But I asked you to bring an innovation quote. Do you have one for us? And also kind of tell us what that means to you. Yeah. So my favorite innovation quote is, when a flower fails to bloom, you fix the environment in which it grows and not the flower. And that's by Alexander Den Heijer. I think that's how you say his name. And I love that quote because I use it when I'm talking to leaders about innovation. Because leaders are like, man, my team doesn't have any ideas. I've asked them to bring me ideas. I've told them my door is always open, but they never bring any ideas to me. And I'm like, well, actually, you know, when a flower doesn't bloom, there's something in the way that you're leading or something in the mechanics of, of your environment that is causing innovation not to actually bloom. People treat innovation culture like some vibe that comes from the mountain to bless the people. But actually, innovation culture is in what leaders reward, celebrate, punish. Mm-hmm. And so if we change some of those enablers and blockers, we can actually really fix the environment that then will allow these flowers to, to actually bloom. And so I love that quote because it really talks about creating the right ecosystem for innovation. Right. Yeah, we need the right environment. For people that want to find out more about the book, Pirates in the Navy, and also the work that you do there at Strategizer or anything else about you, how can they do that? Yeah, so my website, www.tendaiviki.com. That's where you can find out a lot about me. And then also the Strategizer website, www.strategizer.com. Jizer is G-Y-Z-E-R.com. Mm-hmm. And so that's, yeah, that's where we are. And uh, yeah, please check us out. Okay. And there's probably a, a page there about the book on maybe both sites. And the book, I'm sure, is on Amazon and all over the place. Yeah, it's on Amazon, Bronze and Noble, all the places. We'll provide all those links in the show notes to make it easy to get to. Tendi, thank you so much for spending time with us. Yeah, thank you, Chad. Really, really fantastic. Thanks again for listening to The Everyday Innovator. This is where product leaders and managers become product masters, gaining practical knowledge, influence, and confidence so you'll create products customers love. You'll find all the detailed show notes, everything we talked about, at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 308. Keep innovating. Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit theeverydayinnovator.com.